Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Communities across Appalachia are seeing a growing number of young people having a tough time. They aren't in school, don't hold a job, and they're having trouble feeling optimistic about what the future holds. But some of them are finding ways to break out of that pattern. I went from being homeless, a single mom with no money, no nothing, and now I'm a college graduate and I'm gonna be buying my first house this year. And a child psychologist in Charleston, West Virginia, talks about how to help. You don't fix anything. You support, you encourage, you guide. We don't fix because these people aren't broken. We'll also hear from TJ Ellison, who graduated from a career in technical school. Some people do learn through books, but others really like hands-on training. All my time at school, I was never really the kid with straight A's, but whenever it came to hands-on projects, I excelled. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. I grew up in Allegheny County, Virginia, a place that's been losing people for decades. The railroad closed its shops there in the 80s. Talented young people have been streaming out even before I graduated in the mid-90s. We hear a lot about Appalachian communities having trouble hanging on to jobs and people. But what about the young people who are growing up in these places? Uh, Look, it's hard to be a kid today, period. Much less in a struggling community. So what can get these young people engaged and active? And what can help them get the training they need to find jobs in their home communities? Today, we'll be hearing stories that our colleagues at Us and Them recently produced. We begin in Elkins, West Virginia, where reporter Kyle Vass visited a program that teaches young people hands-on skills. Hey. Hey, I'm Kyle. Hi, Kyle. It's uh, like, for whatever reason, we've busted into chaos right now. You're not recording, are you? I mean, always, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are you Michelle? I am. Michelle Ferris is the director of Youth Build in Elkins, West Virginia. This is part of a federally funded program designed to help young people pursue education and job training. As Michelle opens the door, I'm greeted by Gus and Beezy. I'd like to say they're therapy dogs, but that's clearly not true. Beezy, come on, girl. Probably therapy for that. Please come in. (laughs) We walk down a hallway and pass a few offices until we get to the last door. This is our classroom. They are actually in the middle of a a math lesson because these three are studying to earn their task. What's task? That's uh, it's the new GED. It's the high school equivalency test of adult secondary completion. So the first one we're going to take a look at is number two. Could someone read that number to me, please? Brandon Nicely is teaching a math concept to a handful of teenagers who seem to be getting the hang of it. So instead of four, what are we going to use, Allie? Negative, negative four. So the answer would be 4.2 times 10 to the negative fourth power. The three students here are all high school age, but this isn't high school. Youth Build works with young people ages 16 to 24 who have started to disconnect from things like school or work. Now that we're done with those, uh, go ahead and, if you haven't already, uh, do the word problems. And then after you're all finished with those, we will go over them. Michelle says most of the young people here would be categorized as disconnected youth. In addition to working as the director, she's the case manager for her crew members. That's what they call the students in the program. Um, A lot of them have not had basic needs met for a while. Uh, They haven't been to the dentist, they haven't been to a doctor, they need to get eyeglasses, they don't have a driver's license, they can't find their social security card or their birth certificate. So we walk through those things to get them to a stable place uh, where they then feel comfortable to even be in a classroom and start thinking about their education, start getting marketable job skills. Michelle says one of many reasons that her crew members end up here is that traditional school just doesn't work for them. Whether it is in the classroom and and learning how to take it out of the classroom into a job site, or you're actually building on the job site, it's hands-on learning. So is the rest of the things that we focus on, like getting your driver's license. It's kind of a, they do it through experience. And I think once they learn how to do it, like they know how to navigate the DMV. They know what paperwork they need to have. They don't go in four or five times without the proper paperwork because they do all that here. 
YouthBuild offers young people two educational options. One focuses on construction skills, and the other trains them for a career in the healthcare industry. But unlike traditional school, YouthBuild pays young people to be here. They get an educational stipend in the classroom. That's four fifty an hour. Um, we're building a house, so if we take them to the construction job site, they get eight seventy five an hour. We are funded by the Department of Labor. Um, we have a three-year grant that allows us to serve 70 young people in a four-county area. Michelle says her program works with partners in the community, like school counselors, judges, social workers, to identify at-risk youth. They get young people into YouthBuild to help them reconnect with society. One of the people who was steered to Elkins YouthBuild now helps run it. My name is Cheryl Harmon, and I'm a 2015 um, graduate. And what do you do here? So I am the program assistant. What does that entail? Like, what's your day-to-day? So um, day-to-day is pretty much administrative work, um, answering the phones, filing paperwork, making sure that all of our crew members' files are up-to-date, they're not missing any paperwork. Um, And then all the in-betweens, if we have service projects or anything that needs to be done in the classroom or just anything that I can do to support um, our staff and our crew members. What would you say that, like, through most of your crew members that that you've helped, What is the disconnection point? Like, where does a lot of that come from? You know, it's funny you asked that because that was actually one question I had to ask them when I was doing their paperwork. And surprisingly, majority of them said that the other students and the teachers, they said it was their peers and the teachers. um, They felt bullied. um, They were disconnected. They just felt out of touch with the classroom and the learning style in the classroom, but it was like my peers. I just couldn't handle the pressure of being bullied or just not being, you know, accepted um, in the high school they went to. Yeah, and so a lot of these folks are uh, at some point dropping out of high school or middle school. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, um, uh, I think only a couple young people I've come across stopped in middle school, but majority of them stop about ninth grade. Sherelle got involved with the Elkins Youth Build program just after she moved to West Virginia, about seven years ago. I had three kids. I was a single mom. I had no money. I just lost my house, um, lost my first car, um, and I needed a fresh start. A friend of Sherelle's suggested she check out Elkins, West Virginia. And I came here and I found affordable housing within nine months, um, moved my young family here. I was 22 years old. Um, my youngest was two weeks old. Um, I got here and I went to social service because I knew I would need assistance to get me back on my feet, like food stamps and things like that. And the, uh, the caseworker there said, well, what do you want to do work-wise? Sherelle told the caseworker that she wanted to help people. That's when she learned about YouthBuild. And I joined the crew. I was um, hired on in January of 2015. From there, I mean, my life took off from AmeriCorps to travel in the United States, being a public speaker, being a leadership consultant, um, and now I'm program assistant. And seven years, I went from being homeless, a college dropout, a, a single mom with no money, no nothing, and now I'm a college graduate and I'm a program assistant of a nonprofit, a very accredited nonprofit, and I'm going to be buying my first house this year. And the house Sherelle is buying? Youth Build crew members are building it. Michelle takes me to Sherelle's future house, or the Harmon House. It's an eight-minute drive from the Elkins Youth Build building. One of the crew members at the work site is Dayton Eisenhart. He's in his final year at Youth Build and is learning how to build houses. So this is going to be her house? Yes. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And are you the teacher? Or yeah, you? I'm a construction site supervisor. Uh, I'm working with uh, Dayton today. And Dayton, you going to give us the tour? Uh, I guess I can. Cool. Let's see what you've done. Today I was painting this hallway. I paint this room, this closet, and this room in here. Looks good, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, outside, I've done the siding on the front with uh, Jesse one of the other youth builders. And me and Xander done the siding on this side uh, sometime this week. So whenever we started over here, we had to lap through and put a bunch of bolts into uh, the pipe over there. And then we started on this side, I had to crawl in and put a uh, hole for the water spigot there. 
sometime next week, I think we're going to be finishing this side siding and then the back side. Back at Youth Build, the crew members are finishing up their day. Part of their routine is to circle up and talk about how the day went. Dayton, how was your day? I had a great day. All right. What'd you get done? I got like four rooms painted. So did you got, like you've already primed and now you're putting on the... First coat. Wow. That's pretty. That's awesome. You are a good painter, so... Thank you. Thanks for all your hard work. It's looking good over there. No problem. Thank you. And you're fixing those little closets real well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Way better than we do. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, man. With my belly? <laughs> oh, 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 there went all the paint. Oh. Yeah. All right. Sarah, how was your day? Oh, my day was fantastic. I think my head's still spinning. This place was crazy today. Yeah. Holy. There was a lot going on today. That's right. But it makes for a day that goes really quick. That story was produced by Kyle Vass for Us and Them. Another show here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Youth Build is just one program helping equip young people with training and skills to help them find a job. But this program only sustains 20 slots a year. Next, we head over to Huntington, West Virginia, where a program called First Steps works with young people who are homeless. As Kyle Vass reports, for some of the state's young people, this is about more than disconnection from school or work. They're coping with problems involving housing, family members, and a world that's been shaken up by the coronavirus pandemic. John Prentice's desk is located in a corner of the office space for First Steps, a day program for unsheltered youth. This office is a giant open room that's about the dimensions of a basketball court. John is a therapist here. My day-to-day is pretty kind of fluid. It can look like me writing notes, seeing to general behavioral health concerns. So like, hey, I haven't had my anxiety treated in a long time, uh, and I would look, I'm looking for a provider so I can provide a referral there. Or it can look like, hey, uh, there's this huge crisis going on. We need you here now to de-escalate the situation. So hop in your car and go. It's anywhere in between. Was there any point at ages 16 to 24 in your own life where you you felt the pull of a potential existence wherein you're not doing school, you're not doing work, you're just trying to like maybe survive? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I grew up in Elkins, West Virginia in a fairly um, lower middle class family who had periods of some pretty acute poverty. And uh, as a queer teenager trying to figure out, okay, what comes next out of this tiny town? There was a lot of like, hey, where do I go? Where, where do I look up? How do I get connected? Like, and if it wasn't for the social connections that I was fortunate enough to have, there is no way that a lot of this stuff wouldn't have happened because I was already kind of, didn't have the money. Uh, I didn't have social advantage in a lot of cases with other people outside my social group. And so unless I had people that are like, oh, here's how to do this, here's how to do this, there's no way I would have gotten the drive to go to college or the push to, you know, keep going further and, you know, get on this cycle that kind of, once it, it's clunky, but once it gets into gear, it can kind of get you going. Because uh, as, as we've seen nationally, and it's even more acute here, um, a large chunk of, depending on where you are in the country, it's between 10 to 25% of people do not transition, quote unquote, successfully into adulthood. And that successfulness is defined a thousand different ways, but it could be access to medical care. It could be holding down a job. Um, It could be stably housed. It could be any sort of things. So any of those categories, there's like a one in four chance that a person may not do that successfully. And that tells me that there's a larger institutional problem at work here where there's, you know, a little bit better than a coin flip that you're not going to end up connected to a essential resource, you know. So that's a thing that's studied. Yeah, it it is. Uh, Not very well, but it is starting to come into vogue. But rural uh, transitional youth is almost, there's almost no research on right now. A lot of this research is coming out of larger cities. So the phenomenon here is not really well known. 
you know, you mentioned uh, queer identity growing up in rural Appalachia. I was really surprised to learn that West Virginia's percentage of people who identify as trans among youth is like, it's not even close. West Virginia's like heads and shoulders above any other state in the nation. I guess how this like might tie back into this is like in your experience, in your capacity, but also like in your work here is gender identity and the stigma and the discrimination that comes with it. Is that something that you see facing a lot of the, the people that you interact with? Absolutely. Um, so the common statistic that's brought out in a lot of these discussions is 40% of homeless youth are somewhere on the LGBT spectrum. Uh, and naturally that's higher than the, the sample size where we think it's about 10% of the average population is in the LGBT community. So something is causing this uh, distillation up to 40%. And there's a lot of different ideas of what that is, but it has to do ultimately with something is falling apart where these people are losing access to social resources, financial resources, or, you know, community resources. You know, something's falling apart for these people, and it's causing this distillation of the sexual and gender minorities in the lower classes and uh, homeless communities. And there's obviously some kind of level of discrimination there. And unfortunately, what we see a fair amount of is um, people, when they come out, they lose that family. Uh, they lose that, that blood relationship. So any sort of social cachet that they had there is now cut off. So they're even more socially impoverished. And so now us at the center are fulfilling familiar roles on top of, you know, workloads. And so we're becoming this kind of family for these people who now have nothing, you know. I think ignoring the intersectionality of race, gender, sexual orientation, ignoring that and trying to look at homelessness in a vacuum, you miss out on all the nuance. John says providing a supportive environment for gay, lesbian, and trans youth is essential to help address some of the underlying mental health concerns that contribute to homelessness and disconnections. In addition to providing therapy, First Steps has a life coach, Sarah Bentley. So when it comes to washing your hands, um, the rules of thumb are like, before you start preparing food, before you eat, after you've used the restroom. Sarah's walking me through how she teaches cooking to clients at First Steps. Today, it's waffles. She goes over all the basics, like hand washing, because she doesn't want to skip over any of what she calls assumptive knowledge. Unfortunately, there's like, when it comes to society, there's these certain things that you should just know by a certain age, according to the general public. That's not the case. And it's really unfortunate. People have what, like what's considered assumptive knowledge. Well, you're such and such age, so you should already know how to do this so people don't go over those things with people. So we try to do like a life skills assessment to see where people are at from a very neutral, non-judgmental way. Do you know how to do these things? And if not, I'm here to help, you know, and unfortunately... Like I said, some people don't have that. Sarah says an activity like making waffles isn't just about whipping up batter and cooking it. Every step is an opportunity to fill in knowledge gaps. And another thing I always like to, you know, tell our folks when it comes to recipes that we have is sometimes there are words that are used that are just in cooking that you don't interact like, you know, interact with like reading on, you know, a regular basis. So like sifting flour. You know, that's not necessarily like your everyday kind of word. So, you know, I'm always down for, you know, let's take a moment, look that word out to make sure that we have a clear understanding of exactly what that means for the process that we're doing. I think one of my favorite moments is uh, when I invited one of our folks to make banana bread with me. And they were like, I can't read. I'm like, that's fine. We'll work through it. You know, it's no big deal. We can talk through it. So what did you do to help that person learn? We as people, everybody, not just our youth that we work with, but everyone, we put ourselves down immediately before we even try. You know, I always say try, do what you can on your own, and I'm here to help. I'm not going to just abandon you with it. I'm going to, you know, do what you can, and then we'll either 
edit it or, you know, work through it or talk through it if you have parts that you don't understand or that you're not comfortable with. And I am always, you know, incredibly impressed with how much they do on their own in comparison to what they said they could do. In addition to hygiene and literacy, teaching someone how to cook food is also a good lesson in personal finances for Sarah. For instance, with our butter. So we bought a four stick pack of butter. And for this recipe, this would be eight servings. And we're only using three tablespoons of butter, right? So I would take the cost of this four pack of butter, divide it down to get exactly how much three tablespoons of butter would cost, and then divide that again by eight because that's the amount of servings that would have. So I can get the price per serving. And I can say confidently that it is cheaper than going out to Mickey D's and buying some of their hotcakes. Sarah says even some of the more basic life skills that people can pick up at First Steps sometimes translate into employment opportunities down the line. Maybe in that instance, if they've got a new job, I'll work with them on getting their food handler's card, which is set up for free right now through the Cabell County Health Department. But I'll just, you know, help them set up a computer here have them go through that class, you know, if they need to take a moment and mute themselves and ask me what, you know, something meant that the instructor was saying or things like that, you know, we're available there to help them, but I encourage them to, you know, do it as independently as they can. First Steps also provides young people who come through their doors recovery coaching. Jamie Lachmanova helps people with addiction, but unlike a lot of places that offer help with recovery, Jamie says she likes to meet people where they are. I think my first day in, and I was like, hey, I'm the recovery coach, and kind of got some pushback because there had been, I think, a previous recovery coach, um, and some of them were kind of like, well, we already had a super great recovery coach, like, there's no way you're going to top that, and you know, and I'm like, you know, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I don't have to be perfect to be here. I frequently preach that, you know, recovery isn't all or nothing. Abstinence isn't going to be the only way for everyone. Recovery is based on if you are succeeding the way that you want to succeed. Um, so talking with them about, um, you know, multiple pathways, um, that's something that I talk about constantly is that, you know, if at one point in time you were using meth and now you're using, you know, marijuana instead, like if you're using cannabis instead, like, Overall, that's a lot better option than, you know, meth or heroin. So if we can, you know, get on that harm reduction train, if we can get on that moderation management train, you know, that's going to be really good for some of our folks. I definitely think that some people, abstinence only works well for them, and they should definitely go for it. But I think for some people in certain situations, it's actually going to negatively impact them. Life skills and recovery probably go like hand in hand because recovery for a lot of people is probably a life skill, if not like the life skill that anchors everything else, right? Recovery is a lot of life skills, but it's life skills in combination with whatever that person's pathway is. So for like conflict resolution, you know, a lot of us say the same things over and over to our youth on a pretty consistent basis. We try to be really consistent with them. We try to give them the same language. If they're dealing with like a specific problem, we try to give them that same language over and over again. And it feels really good whenever they turn around and they use that same language. So with, you know, some of our youth, something that I kind of preach is like, if you want to see a better world, you have to be a better person. So you have to put that good out there. And so having them, you know, turn back around and being like, I'm going to be that good. I'm going to be that better person. You know, I'm not going to start a fight today. I'm going to go home. So that way I don't because I'm making better choices and being a better person. Like it's, I think, a feel good moment for all of us whenever we've been kind of saying that same thing over and over again. And then they not only follow along with it, but like they know the words we're using. They're using the same language and, you know, they're making that change in themselves because they want to not because we keep preaching it. Jamie says this approach makes a connection rather than requiring a particular program. Jamie also points out that addiction and recovery aren't just limited to drug use. You can be addicted to anything. And that even if you don't want to consider, you know, weed a drug, it still can be addictive in your brain. Like it can still impact your brain in a way that like, you know, 
I'm not telling people to do drugs, but if you're using substances before 25, it is going to impact your brain, how your brain develops. Talking with our youth about, you know, even if you don't want to consider it a drug, like it is, it can still be addictive. It can still impact you negatively. First Steps offers mental health services, life coaching, and recovery, but it also recognizes that there are other things to help their clients with. Here's Sarah again. I think that the biggest eye-opener, there's certain things that, like with the life skills assessment, that you can't necessarily teach. Like, for instance, one of the questions is, do you have a family member that you could get in touch with if you didn't have anywhere to stay for the night? The majority of the folks that take that assessment say no. That's not anything that I can fix. That's not anything that I can teach. But that's good to know that we need to try to get them linked up with resources. That was Sarah Bentley, who works as a life coach with First Steps, a wellness and recovery center in Huntington, West Virginia. When we come back, we'll hear from a child psychologist about one of the biggest hurdles for young people to stay connected, trauma, like domestic violence which can lead a young person to feel helpless. I can't save my mother. I can't save myself. I can't save anybody, no matter what I do. It's safer to just sit here and not move and not be noticed. We'll hear what can help break these cycles of learned helplessness. That's after a quick break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. about some of the reasons that cause young people to drop out of school and without a clear path forward to get a job. Kentucky and West Virginia have some of the country's lowest rates of young people who get a high school diploma or bachelor's degree. 17% of young people here in West Virginia aren't working or in school. But as we'll hear next, many of these young people reach this point because they're dealing with the effects of trauma and often multiple types of trauma. From economic hardship in their families to abuse and neglect to parents with substance use disorder, child psychologist Colleen Moran of Charleston, West Virginia, says that supporting teenagers through these experiences is crucial to help them envision and actively participate in their future. Kyle Vass spoke with Moran about her work. Colleen Moran has the nice big wooden desk and upholstered seats that you'd expect in a psychologist's office. But she also has a kitchen playset, a box of toys in the corner, and magnetic alphabet letters on a filing cabinet. Moran specializes in working with young people. At least 90% are children. Um, And by children, I call kids up to the age of 21, 22, even up to 24, 25, because we know that the brain is still developing, still maturing, and still changing up through the age of 25. Are you working with kids? I mean, is this intentional or is this where you're needed or is it a bit of both? It's definitely a need because not a lot of people really want to work with kids. It takes a different kind of individual to love working with children and to want to do that. And that's where my heart is. I have always loved working with kids. I believe I can make the biggest difference 
working with children than working with adults because if you change a child, you change not only that individual's life for the rest of that individual's life, but you also change everybody else that that child comes into contact with. Moran is based out of Charleston, but she's worked all over the state. She says a lot of her clients fall into that category of disconnected youth and that the phenomenon appears to be getting worse here. The figure, I think, in 2017, the most recent figure, was that 17% of West Virginians within this age group are part of this phenomenon. And the national average was about 12. So it's particularly high here. Have you talked with many young people who would identify as this or would fall into this category? Yes. Um, I've talked to quite a few of them. I've got several of them on my caseload. I have more casual relationships with several others. It's a prevalent problem and it appears to be growing. Several of the individuals with whom I work, for a lot of them, it's depression. For a lot of them, it it goes back to that learned helplessness. Nothing I do is going to make any difference. It's not going to matter. Nothing I do is going to matter. Why should I even bother? What are some of these conversations? Like, What are you hearing from them in these conversations? That it just doesn't matter, that it doesn't make any difference. I can't find anything I want to do. Nothing interests me. I really believe a lot of it is undiagnosed depression. I would bet that a lot of these kids have undisclosed trauma backgrounds or difficulties in their backgrounds. Why is that? In order to have a learned helplessness response, you have to have something occur to you, happen to you, that caused you to think that no matter what you did, you couldn't make a difference and it wasn't going to change anything. And trauma is the most likely thing to have caused that thought process. Being stuck in a situation where no matter what you did, it didn't make a difference. You couldn't change things. You couldn't improve your situation. And if you can't improve your situation, no matter how hard you try, why would you bother trying? Moran says there's a straightforward explanation. West Virginia is a place filled with all sorts of trauma. She says people here, especially young people, are more likely to fall into a pattern of learned helplessness. She says that's when someone tries to do something to improve their situation in life, but is met with negative outcomes over and over again. The result? Some people stop trying. I feel that it's like hard to speak in generalities often about the state, but would you say that we are living in an area where there is a particularly high amount of trauma and like what those traumas are that a West Virginian might experience that might explain why this is higher than the national average? We have very, very high levels of substance abuse in this area, not just the opioid crisis, but also a lot of drinking and other drug uses that cause that kind of trauma to kids. Because let's face it, kids can't control what their parents do or do not do. That is a learned helplessness situation. We have a very high level of domestic violence in our state, and that is another situation. Kids watch the domestic violence. I can't save my mother. I can't save myself. I can't save anybody no matter what I do. It doesn't make a difference, and sometimes if I intervene, it makes things worse. So why would I do anything? It's safer to just sit here and not move and not be noticed. Moran says this learned helplessness even extends out to the professional world, a result of West Virginia's decades-long economic downturn. We also have a situation where there is such high unemployment in West Virginia that kids are watching their parents go through learned helplessness. And so some of it very well may be a learned behavior. You know, dad's gone out and he's tried to get a job and he's tried to get a job and he's tried to get a job. Every coal mine he's ever worked for has closed down. He's been laid off. He's been laid off. He's been laid off. When you see your parent going through that, well, why would I even go get trained? Why bother going to get a job? It's not going to make any difference. I'm not going to be able to keep it anyway. Moran says what might sound like a fairly benign conversation to most people is a red flag for her. One individual who should be in high school now is not, 
has absolutely no ambition, can't say what they want to do when they should be graduating this spring from high school, most likely won't because they haven't done any of their work, no idea what they want to do this summer. I'm just going to stay here and play on my phone and play video games. There's nothing else I want to do. She says the shame and stigma that can follow being disconnected doesn't help. It probably is not the driving factor, but for a lot of these individuals, you've got some shame, you've got some embarrassment, but the learned helplessness and those overlying depressive symptoms are taking precedence over that. They don't have the skills or the ability or the support in order to overcome that. How do you fix that? You don't fix anything. You provide skills, you teach abilities, you support, you encourage, you guide. We don't fix because these people aren't broken. They have been through some horrendous experiences or they have chemical imbalances or they are in bad situations. They're not broken. They just need help, support, and skills. Colleen Moran is a psychologist based in Charleston, West Virginia. She was speaking with Kyle Vass. West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia struggle with low rates of young people who graduate high school and get a college degree. Sarah Tucker is the Chancellor of Higher Education for the state of West Virginia. Us and Them host Trey Kay sat down to talk with Tucker about what she thinks could help more young people go to college. So only 9% of recent high school graduates matriculate onto a community college in the state of West Virginia. 9% to a community college. Now more go on to a back, many more go on to a baccalaureate institution, but only 9% go on to a community college. So that number is absurd. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no other way for me to say that. That's, that's a ridiculous number. That number needs to be three times more than what it is or four times more than what it is. Those students who are not going to college, who are not working, who are wondering what they should be doing, have access to community college in the state. And because of what the legislature has done over the past couple of years, they have access to community college for free. They don't have to pay anything. Just this year, the legislature changed the West Virginia Invest program before it didn't cover some of the academic program costs. But the legislature said, no, that doesn't make sense to us anymore. And so they, they're allowing it to cover some of those academic program costs. It's free. For heaven's sakes, you know, we have these incredible programs that have 100% placement rate. And we're having trouble getting students to, to fill the classroom. That's nuts. We need to be able to talk to our students and talk to the kids that are around us about that type of programming and let them know that there are really great options available to them here in West Virginia. Are there other obstacles? Well, I mean, life gets in the way for a lot of students, you know, I mean, life is challenging. And and for many of our students, you have um, students who are parents, you have students who are taking care of parents, you have students who are independent and taking care of themselves. And so, it's not necessarily just about covering tuition and fees, right? I mean, having tuition and fees covered is amazing, but they also have to have an apartment and they have to pay for their uh, you know, car payment and all of these other things. And, and so that becomes really challenging for our students. In the K-12 school process, is there a certain age when a person is no longer welcome in the system? They age out of the program. You can't be 25 and still be a senior in high school, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you do age out at some point. The exact age, I, I'm not sure of. I think I saw in the legislature this year, and I don't know if it if it passed or not, frankly, an attempt to extend the age for one more year for students to graduate, I think until they were 19, maybe. I think it was because of the pandemic, yeah. And I, and I honestly don't know what the status of that bill was. I just saw it going through. We've been talking about people in West Virginia who are in areas that don't have a culture of higher education. And they 
are with parents who have college educations and, and who have hopes uh, for their children to go on to higher learning. And they, they realize that this is important. And they're having trouble motivating their youth out of this stuck place. Do you have advice for them? What I keep trying to encourage students and families to think about is, especially during this past year, we've just been thinking about how to stay safe, right? We've been thinking about how to stay safe. We haven't been planning <laughs> for our futures. We haven't, we haven't gone in, in that space. And so we need to start planning for our futures. And I think one of the problems that we have in West Virginia, particularly around college, is that the conversation hasn't been around the spectrum of things that college can offer. The conversation has been about very specific four-year liberal arts degrees, which are terrific. I have one, but they don't appeal to every single person. We don't have that conversation about, you know, well, this is what a big college looks like or a big university looks like. This is what a medium-sized one looks like. This is what a small one looks like. This is what a community college can offer you. We really just have those conversations around, frankly, big football programs, right? <laughs> I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not having the conversation about here are all of the things that you can do with your life. And it looks different. And a lot of times people have experience, you know, their own experience, guidance counselors, for example, all went to baccalaureate institutions. They don't have experience with community colleges. They don't know what those options are. And so it's hard for them to be able to guide students towards them. So we need to do a better job of making sure that everybody knows what the programs are and the options are for our students so that they can pick and choose amongst all of the options and not just think it's a one size fits all because it's not a one size fits all. It's, it's just not. But we haven't done a great job of getting that message out. And I'm working really hard to try to do a better job of that now. So, as Tucker said, West Virginia officials recognize that they have more work to do to convince young people that community college is a good option. Part of that is overcoming the false belief that community colleges aren't as good as four-year universities. A similar stigma hangs over career or technical high schools. For our final story, we're going to listen back to a piece that a student in Fayette County, West Virginia, produced last year. T.J. Ellison graduated from Fayette Institute of Technology. During his senior year, he worked with our team here at Inside Appalachia to learn radio storytelling. TJ decided to focus on his own experience and set out to learn more about how students and teachers in his community feel about career and technical education. I decided to go to a high school with vocational programs myself because when I was nine, I decided I wanted to be a chef. I thought there was a home economics class in middle school to help me start my path to culinary greatness, but there wasn't. When I got to high school, a culinary arts class was offered at our CTE school. The CTE school here is a completely separate building from our high school. When it came time to enroll, I didn't think twice, as I'm not very well suited for a traditional classroom setting. But, as graduation came closer and I began applying for colleges, I was wondering, have I made the right decision? I began asking my classmates and school staff if they think going to a career school in technical high school helps students who are looking at a college. One of my fellow students at my school is Kristen Williams. Before this story, I never actually sat down to talk with her about this topic. Like me, she loved the benefits of learning through practical experience. We learn off of a board or in a book. For a lot of us, that's not how we learn. We just throw it off. We just try to get by and pass. But here we're learning something hands-on and we're able to actually keep that information. Another reason Kristen likes CTE schools is because it helps break down the stereotype that college is the only path forward for those students that are about to graduate. Most definitely. This school gives kids a reason to come to school every day. Kristen is hoping to get a job as an auto mechanic after she graduates high school. She says she learns better at CTE school compared to her traditional high school, where she sat at a desk all day and struggled to stay focused. She says all around, CTE classes has given her a reason to care about school in ways she hadn't in the past. I've been able to come out of my shell. I am with teachers who care about me as an individual. I care about my teachers and my classmates. Learning by doing is a huge draw to career and technical education, or CTE classes, which is the official name for vocational technology classes. In West Virginia, these courses are offered in high school as a supplement to the traditional classroom environment with classes that teach hands-on career skill. For Kirsten, that means auto mechanic classes, 
but it can also be skills like business or forestry classes. But those aren't the only options. Many CTE programs across the state offer classes for media production, cooking, and even classes that help prepare students for the medical field. With that being said, there is still a stereotype that CTE classes are all shop classes, with some schools even having derogatory terms for those who spend the majority of their time in the CTE facilities. The reason for this, as FIT Principal Mr. Keaton points out, is because the perception of CTE classes hasn't been adapted to what is now available to the students. I think that the current generation of parents, which is my generation of people, grew up in a time when trade schools were where a lot of guys went to work on their cars, learn how to build houses, and that kind of thing. That's That was my experience when I was in high school. That's, that's what the Votech was for. Welding technology instructor Roy Neal Jr. explains that the skills learned in CTE classes can directly lead to employment upon graduation. They definitely help uh, students get jobs out in the industry. I have a lot of employers that call here looking for students because they know the quality of students that I send out of here. So they want somebody that has the basic understanding of a trade. Mr. Neal says people don't often talk about the benefits of a vocational high school. Yeah, I think it should be promoted more in, in the high schools uh, through the guidance counselors, you know, because I know they push college, you know, students hard. And while they're still in high school, uh, students ought to be informed of the opportunities that they have in a vocational school as long as they have all their academic credits caught up. He also believes CTE classes not only teach students important workforce-related skills, but also helps reinforce what is learned in the traditional classroom. I've had students in, to run through this program that probably would have dropped out of school. That's their opportunity, you know. And not everybody's academic, you know. You just have to find uh, what draws your interest in life. I mean, you can't teach everybody the same, like robots. I mean, everybody has a, a different technique of learning, different techniques of doing things, have their own concept of what they want to do with their life, whether it's through music or through art or through hands-on work or being a doctor or whatever. You have to find your love in life. And once you find that, you know, that will help you get more involved in, in other things, such as academics. Even looking past job training, CTE programs give some students a reason to go to school in the first place. As business instructor Miss Woodson explains, the classes give students who might not be interested in their more traditionally taught classes a better way to learn. We had a lot of students that when I had them as ninth and 10th graders, you know, I would really just tell them, I know that you're struggling here. I know a traditional classroom setting isn't working for you. So, but if you hang in there and we can get you to fit, you know, I think you'll find something that will really, that you'll enjoy. This is something that multimedia and publishing student Stormy Surface has seen firsthand among her peers. I've had friends who wanted to drop out, but then when they started their vocational class, they loved it so much that they wanted to stay in school just because it was something they looked forward to every day. But not everyone is fit for a CTE program. Markayla King was considering going into the pharmacy classes offered at FIT, but had a change of heart. I did consider going to Votech, but I chose against it because of what I've known about it. Like, I didn't want to be chained down to one certain career. I wanted to kind of expand my careers to see what I want to go into. Markayla is considering going into pathology as she graduates. So the idea of not being able to take more STEM classes at her school made her feel a little uneasy about going to fit. In the end, Markayla did change her career choice. Instead of pharmacy, she wants to study biochemistry and pathology. She plans to attend West Virginia University in the fall. I get what she means. A CT school probably wouldn't have given her the chance to focus as much of her time on AP chemistry and other sciences. But I disagree that she would have had to only choose one career path if she'd chosen a CTE track. Actually, I changed career plans myself. Though I was initially wanting to go into culinary arts and become a chef, I got to take the multimedia arts class at my school. Now I'm hoping to pursue media as my career field. Trade schools are often looked down on and get a bad rap because of what they're designed to do. 
Some people see them as an option for kids who would otherwise drop out. But around my community, it's not as stigmatized as much as it is in other places. For me personally, my dad went to a trade school for his high school, and that's how it is for many of my friends and their neighbors. One thing I realized while interviewing people for the story is that everybody doesn't learn the same way. Some people do learn through books, but others really like hands-on training, and that's some I can personally identify with. Though all my time at school, I was never really the kid with straight A's, but whenever it came to the hands-on projects, I excelled. And while CTE schools aren't often for everybody, for a lot of students, including me, they work. And over time, I do hope that hands-on learning becomes more accepted. For Inside Appalachia, I'm TJ Ellison in Fett County, West Virginia. TJ Ellison graduated from high school a few days after he filed that story last year. He's now attending online classes at Los Angeles Film School and working a part-time job. He lives in Fayette County, West Virginia. TJ's classmate, Ashton Huffman, also helped report that story. And Corey Nolinger helped produce it. Among adults, there's often this tendency to diminish what young people are going through today versus what it was like when we were growing up. I walked to school in waist-deep snow, uphill both ways, that sort of thing. But today's young people face problems I couldn't imagine when I was growing up. School shooter drills, climate change, a world economy that's constantly reinventing itself, a pandemic that's killed more than half a million Americans. It's our job as grown-ups to support them the best we can, however we can. Their future is our future. I'm Mason Adams. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Today's episode was largely possible thanks to Kyle Vass and Trey Kay with the Us and Them podcast. Us and Them is supported with grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, and the CRC Foundation. The reporting in this episode was supported with a grant from the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Jake Sheps, Michael Lipton, Tristan Lozal and Marisa Anderson. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wbpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.